Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm David Hamilton Golland, the host of the channel for today. And today, we'll be talking to Dr. Kevin Magruder, Associate Professor at Antioch College in Yellow Springs, Ohio, about his new book, Philip Payton, The Father of Black Harlem, which was published this year, 2021, by Columbia University Press. Uh, Kevin, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, Kevin, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Sure. Um, I am, my research interest is real estate, particularly issues of race. And that really comes from a kind of roundabout uh, professional and academic career. I have a, a BA in economics from Harvard. And while I was there, I got really interested in urban economics, and that led to a career in community development, uh, housing development mainly. I got an MBA from Columbia University in 1984 in real estate finance, and uh, then worked, uh, continued to work in nonprofit development in Harlem uh, with the Abyssinia Development Corporation in the 90s, where I was director of real estate development. And that's really where I began to encounter Philip Payton and his history. And, uh, but I had already, uh, while I was at business school, got very interested in Harlem history. And that in the 80s, a lot of the Harlem Renaissance books were being republished. And I began to read them during study breaks. And when I graduated and was working in real estate development in Harlem, I also got very interested in the history of the neighborhood and did walking tours occasionally for groups and uh, eventually had an opportunity to teach as an adjunct at Baruch College in the City University of New York system, uh, a class called Black Economic Development, 1860 to the present. And that experience really got me thinking about wanting to teach full time. And in uh, 2001, I entered uh, City University of New York Graduate uh, Center uh, for the doctoral program in history. And there, I knew I wanted to do something on Harlem. And my advisor was Dr. Judith Stein, who does a lot of, did a lot of work on um, economics and business. And so we, we shared a lot of interest and, and she uh, really helped guide me. Uh, I had thought that Peyton would be my dissertation topic, but she wisely advised me that I wanted to get done. <laughs> and so I looked more broadly really at the life and times, the period 1890 to 1920. And so the dissertation became my first book uh, that was published in 2015. And it's called Race and Real Estate, Conflict and Cooperation in Harlem, 1890 to 1920. And in the course of writing that book, I found a lot more information about Peyton. And since the book wasn't only about him, it didn't make sense to put it in that book. And so after that came out, I returned to the Peyton Project and was able to fill in some gaps that had continued to be there. And so that's kind of what led me to 
you know, both the career and the project. I'm originally from Toledo, Ohio. And so I uh, am at Antioch College in Yellow Springs, Ohio. I've been there since 2012. So uh, after living in New York for 30 years, returned to Ohio and uh, am uh, continuing to research New York. um, But in a way, perhaps the, the a little bit of distance gives me another perspective on it as well. Thank you. Uh, yeah, and you mentioned uh, the late uh, Judy Stein, a real loss to the profession. Yes, yes. Yep. Uh, but I, I also remember, uh, as you know, I'm, I'm a former colleague of yours from uh, our dissertation, our, our doctoral years at the Graduate right. Center, and I too knew uh, Judy Stein. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is a good time for me to give the disclaimer, actually. You um, acknowledge me uh, on the very first sentence of the acknowledgments in your book, and I appreciate that. Um, but uh, Dr. Um, Christopher Burrell and I were a, uh, a writing seminar of sorts with you um, uh, during the process that you went through in um, in writing this book. Um Let's talk. Let's begin. Let's just uh, jump right in. Then, um, you know, you did a lot of research in and on uh, the town of Westfield, Massachusetts, where Philip Payton is from. How did the Payton family come to be in Westfield, and what sort of an experience did they have? They moved to Westfield in the eighteen seventies. Uh, Philip Payton. His full name is Philip Anthony Payton Jr. And so, Philip Anthony Payton. Senior was born in North Carolina, Washington, North Carolina, um, during the time of slavery, and I haven't been able to determine if he was enslaved or not. Uh, Philip Payton's mother, Annie Ryans, was born in Maryland, and again, I haven't been able to determine if she was enslaved or not. Um, it's a kind of convoluted story that connects them to Westfield, but I, I really try to work the backstory in the first chapter that the father is a preteen when the Civil War begins and the area where he lived was occupied by Union troops from including a unit from Westfield um, for quite a while. And I can't say definitively, but I believe that may be where the Westfield connection comes from. Uh, When the war ends, uh, Peyton's father and mother, to be mother, uh, they are in New York in the early 1870s. They're living in an apartment. They're not married yet. Uh, By 1873, they're in Westfield and they're married. And so I believe, you know, if you think about, well, Washington, North Carolina, Baltimore, Maryland, why Westfield? And so that those troops, I believe, make the connection there. In Westfield, uh, they become entrepreneurs. Uh, Peyton's father was a barber for black men. Barbering was a entryway to a middle class and upper middle class possibility. Uh, His mother was a hairdresser, and so they were an entrepreneurial team from the beginning. Year after year in the city directory in Westfield, 
their ads appear and not just for hair. Sometimes they're uh, doing uh, their tea brokers. There's other things. They're pivoting, I think, based on market demand. Um, Peyton Jr. Uh, is the second child. Uh, his sister is born in 1875 and Peyton is born in 1876. And uh, he had two younger brothers. Uh, his sister was Susan Peyton. The uh, next youngest brother, James, was born a year after Peyton Jr. And then his younger brother, Edward, is about five years younger. By the time they are, I would say, in grammar school, their father has bought a building on a main street in Westfield. It's a town of um, a few thousand people, uh, has several industries that really give it a thriving economy. And it's predominantly white. There are a handful of black families, maybe a dozen or so at any given time. And so I believe that Peyton's, uh, the Peyton Barbershop and Hairdresser, I believe their clientele was primarily white uh, clientele. But the fact that his father buys a building on one of the main streets in Westfield um, gives a, a sense of their prosperity. And so that's the environment that Peyton grows up in. Uh, they live above the shop. And so he's seeing his parents as entrepreneurs, seeing the relationships they're building with others. He's growing up in a community that is predominantly white and looking at photographs from his school years. Um, it, it's like probably other northern cities it, there's not a hard line of racial segregation. Um, there's a photograph in the book of Peyton. He was he and his brother James were on the football team, and I've seen pictures from that same period in Yellow Springs where the black children are in the back row of those pictures, and I don't think it's a coincidence. But in this picture, both of them are in the front, and they're not next to each other. They're next to white young men. And Peyton, on one side, he has his, he's at the far right, and he has his right hand over uh, the, the young man next to him. He has it on his shoulder. And so there's like a collegiality that um, comes through in that picture. And that, that picture has been incorporated into a mural in the Westfield Athenaeum, along with other pictures of historic Westfield. And so, um, so that's the environment that he grew up in. And uh, as I've talked about the book, and I mentioned a little bit in, in this book, too, is there's some parallels to W.E.B. Du Bois' upbringing and Peyton's. Du Bois grew up in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. It's a little bit older than Peyton, but I think there's some similarities there in terms of growing up in a predominantly white community. Uh, blackness was not the core of their identity in, in their youth. And you know, we'll see in, in this book, we see that it later becomes the quiet identity for Peyton. And Du Bois went through uh, kind of that somewhat a similar trans transition in terms of uh, blackness being central to their his identity as well. Thank you. Uh, just a quick follow up. Um, so do you think when they put 
uh, Philip and the other African American student in the front row, rather yeah, than the back, brother. is <laughs> his brother. In fact, um, is there some sort of virtue sig or what we today would call virtue signaling going on by a perhaps a, a, a school that wants to appear um, more open minded than it necessarily is? It, it's hard to say definitively, but I, if I had to speculate, I would say I doubt it. Mm-hmm. that the Paytons are at the top of the economic status for Black people in Westfield. So his father is well-known, his mother is well-known. Um, and and so I think it's a, a way that, and Peyton had a winning personality, that that comes across as an adult, but I'm sure that didn't. And there's some things he does in childhood that gives a sense of that too. Um, and so I think it was just a matter, well, of course, <laughs> they're part of the crowd. <laughs> you know, that's that's the sense I got. So I don't think it was any kind of self consciousness on the school um, in doing that. Although you know, we'll never know definitively. But from what I've read about the family and Peyton in particular, I think it was just uh, he's part of the crowd. <laughs> I really like the way you put it that we'll never know definitively. It's a, it's something you've said already on the question of um, how it is that uh, the idea of moving to Westfield came into the mind in the first place of uh, Peyton's parents. And uh, you have some evidence that perhaps it was because the Union troops from that town were stationed nearby in North Carolina. But you're not willing to make a definitive conclusion. And I think that speaks to what it is that historians do. Has that been your experience uh, throughout your career where um, you've had some evidence, but not enough to make a, an absolute uh, or to, to draw a reasonable conclusion? Yes. And I think that would kind of go to uh, my training and uh, mentorship under Judith Stein in that, you know, that question about, well, what's the evidence for this claim? (laughs) And if it's not there, be really careful about what claim you're making. And uh, Peyton is well known in Harlem histories, but it's usually about a paragraph or two at most. And so as I fill in the blanks. I don't want to kind of overstretch my arguments in terms of what I, I know. Um, mm-hmm. There are no personal papers, no business records. And so I really did have to work the public records. Peyton was a master at publicity and advertising. And so he was in the newspapers a lot. And that helped me a lot. But his father was not in the, he was in the, he had ads, but he didn't use the papers in the same way that would have given me the evidence that I would need to, like an interview with Peyton Sr. or his mother explaining why they came uh, would have been good. His father gets an obituary, a big, a pretty big one with a photograph in the Westfield paper when he dies in uh, the first decade of the 1900s, but that obituary doesn't uh, explain how he got to Westfield. So I, I just didn't have the evidence to, to make that claim that I do. You, you certainly make a lot uh, out of the evidence that you do have. Uh, just some statistics for our listeners. Uh, the book itself is 171 uh, pages of text uh, with about 17 pages of endnotes. Um, and so it is obviously a, a very thoroughly researched uh, work. 
and uh, and well thought out. Now, after growing up in Westfield, uh, Philip Payton, as you mentioned, the second child, uh, the first son, um, he goes somewhere else. And where would that be? In April 1899, he goes to New York seeking his fortune. And that information is based on an interview that an account that he gives. Um, it's given retrospectively in 1907. Uh, he is one of the people featured in an anthology by Booker T. Washington called The Negro in Business. And in it, uh, Peyton is reflecting on how his career got started in New York. And part of what I was getting at when I was talking about he was one of the guys in Westfield, uh, there's a downside of that too, that uh, by his junior year in high school, his father felt he was hanging around with the wrong crowd and sends him away uh, to school. He goes to Livingston, Livingstone uh, College in Salisbury, North Carolina, which is a historically black college. It was quite new then. It was founded by the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church. And uh, during that year, seems like he gets back on track. And this is the parallel that I mentioned with Du Bois. Du Bois went to college at Fisk University, Fisk College probably when it first got started in Nashville. And um, I believe that when Peyton is at Livingstone, he's in a predominantly Black environment at this college, that that's really where his identity in terms of his Black identity uh, comes probably into formation. Um, when he returns back home, though, he, he, he stays there a year, and it seems like his father feels like he's back on track. But when he goes back, he uh, is playing football, has a football injury, and it's a pretty serious one, and he breaks his wrist. And he gets – he's out of school for a while, and so, so long that he doesn't go back to school, so he doesn't complete high school. And he ends up working in his father's barbershop. And like striving parents everywhere of every race or ethnicity, most want their children to do better and something different than they're doing. And although barbering was a, uh, a very respectable profession, his father and mother wanted him to do something more. And he talks about in this interview how his parents expected more of him and another pressure is from his younger brother, James. His brother, James, is about to graduate from Yale in classics at this time. And so I'm sure either he's thinking it, what am I doing? Or his parents are saying this. And he says he leaves on, uh, in April of 1899 because he felt he wasn't getting any younger. And if he was going to seek his opportunity, he better, he better do it then. And so he goes to New York. And some of that lack of discipline plays out in his first days in New York as he spends all his money sightseeing. He does get a job at a port as a porter in a store. But then at Labor Day, he goes home. This is uh, by this time, it's um, uh, still 1899. He goes home and when he comes back, um, his job is gone because I guess he didn't communicate with his boss that he was going to be going. And he finds another job and then another. And then this next job that he finds opens up the door for the rest of his life, really, because he finds a job as a porter 
in uh, the office of Charles Schuyler, who is a real estate developer. The Upper West Side of Manhattan is in development then, and Schuyler is central to that. And Peyton, as a porter, he's probably, it's probably a combination of messenger, doing odd jobs, maybe even custodian. Um, But he talks about how he's observing what's happening and an account of the real estate industry at that time describes Schuyler as the person who's central to the development of the Upper West Side. And so Peyton mentions that it's then that he decides uh, that that's what he wants to do. And uh, so he's only been there. He's been there uh, in New York about a year when he makes that decision. So he goes from being a high school dropout to starting a farm with a I believe somebody he he probably knew from Massachusetts, a young man named Albert Brown, who is a little bit older than him. They start the firm of Brown and Peyton uh, Real Estate, and it's based in uh, the Midtown, the Tenderloin area, which was the area where uh, Black people in Manhattan were concentrated at that time. So you meant you mentioned a couple things uh, in this most recent answer, which. Um uh so, sort of uh, make me want to <laughs> ask a couple of follow-ups so first of all when he worked for uh Skyler is that uh the Skyler family that was related to Alexander Hamilton 100 years earlier I do not know that is, Good answer. That, is, that is an area for further research. Yeah. Uh, usually, though, when I when I think of New York and I hear the name Skyler, uh, you know, I think about that connection, especially if it's if it's a real estate yeah. uh, connection. And then Brown and Peyton, uh, do you think that it was likely that they took that name as opposed to Peyton and Brown just because it was alphabetical, or do you think that Brown had more of a uh, an advantage in the in the partnership? I think Brown was a little bit older than Peyton, and it's only a couple of years. Um, I'm not sure what he was doing before, but that was my assumption why Brown was first. Brown doesn't stay with the firm long. He leaves after a year, and Peyton continues. And I wasn't able I, – I, Brown and Peyton is mentioned a lot in other accounts, but I was finally able to find the, his first name mm-hmm. in a, uh, a Springfield paper. Uh, he was from Springfield, Massachusetts, which is about 10 miles from Westfield. Um, but that's what I uh, suspect uh, is kind of what he brought to. I think Peyton by himself, you know, even though his parents were prosperous, I don't get the impression that they were in a position to, you know, kind of finance a business that he's going to be doing, that they mm-hmm. wished him well. But it's not there's no evidence that he was going to be able to fall back on them to finance it. So I think Brown, I suspect, brought some of the funds to the business. And let's drill down a little bit on, if you don't mind, what is, uh, how would you characterize African-American life at this time in New York City? Uh, What is it socially? What is it culturally? What is it in terms of employment, um, in terms of the the degree to which individuals faced, individuals and groups faced racism, uh, faced violence, faced uh, police brutality? Geographically, in Manhattan, the focus is in what was called the Tenderloin area, which is roughly 23rd Street to the low 60s 
6th Avenue to 8th Avenue. And, but there was still a Black community in Greenwich Village, which had been there since the early 1800s. But the concentration is above 23rd Street. And there, um, there are tenement buildings, there are bars, um, there's police corruption that allows for those areas to become the red light district of, of Manhattan. I'm not saying it's the only one, but it, it was one. And so there's a lot of, um, there's a concentration of poverty in those areas too, but there's also, um, at 52nd street, that's the institutional base of the black community, 52nd between sixth Avenue and eighth Avenue. That's where, uh, the larger churches are when the YMCA and YWCA's uh, segregated ones get started. That's where they are. And Peyton's business is in the middle of that. Um, The black community is really kind of reconstituting itself after the draft riots of 1863, Mm -hmm. um, which targeted that area as well. And when that happened, and low and and below actually, um, uh, the black elite moved to Brooklyn in large numbers, and they're still there in 1900. Um, and and so you've got a mix. There, racially, that's the concentration. But there are black people in Harlem, above 110th Street, um, and had been there. Uh, for decades um, in very small numbers. The black community is beginning to grow in New York decade by decade as people move from the South. And that year that Peyton begins his Brown and Peyton's 1900, that summer, he begins in 1900, I believe it's in the spring. And that summer, there's a a civil disturbance in the area uh, where the police brutality is the, is at the root of it. And a policeman um, who a black man felt a policeman was um, harassing his common law wife on the street. And the, the black man uh, gets in a fight with this undercover officer. And in the course of this fight, uh, the black man stabs the undercover officer who doesn't die immediately, but he dies a couple of days later And when he does, the police and their allies kind of unleash a fury of anger at the black community, pulling people off the streetcars, chasing them down the street, beating them up. And so Peyton is living in that area. He is also recently married. And so his business is in the area. He and his wife, Maggie, uh, are living in that area right when all this happens. And then... Uh, his partner Brown leaves. Peyton remains there afterward, um, but is really struggling to get the business going again. And so there's a lot of um, if 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 I was Philip Peyton in 1900, um, I would wonder <laughs> kind of what should I stay here, and um, and I'm sure that's what he wondered too. Uh, he ends up opening an office on Lower Manhattan. Um, around Nassau Street. Um, And then he and his wife move to Harlem um, 
because I, I'm sure that it felt unsafe to be there because the police were really behind that, that turmoil. And so it's not like they could call on them <laughs> if they mm-hmm. needed something in the future. And so it probably felt very unsafe to, to remain there. And that uh, initial move to Harlem and the opening up of an office on Nassau Street uh, made for a sometimes interesting commute. Can you talk a little bit about that? And that's where the nature of his uh, bootstrapping is clear. In in the account that he gives, he says that uh, sometimes he didn't have the, the nickel for uh, the streetcar. And so he would walk the nine miles uh, from Harlem down to lower Manhattan. Wow. He talks about their not having food. And so they had a cat. The cat died because they didn't have food for them. They get evicted from their apartment. Um, and so, you know, and what I really was trying to answer in this biography is like, what drove him that there is, a, you know, these challenges that, you know, most pe- many people would probably just say, okay, well, let me go back home or let me do something else. But he continued to push forward. And, and so what does he do? He has some successes. And he says that it turns out that there are two white property owners that are having an argument between them. And so during this period, the late 18. 18- Late into the 1890s, into the early decade of first decade of the 1900s, as African Americans move, emancipated African Americans begin to move about, particularly the numbers increase in the North, the notion that uh, blackness is associated with negativity is something that begins to be adopted in a lot of different spheres of life in the North. Uh, Khalil Muhammad in his book, The The Condemnation of Blackness, uh, talks about race being written into crime during this period. He looks at Philadelphia in particular and how people assume that black people are kind of inherently criminal. The same thing is happening in housing. There's real estate professionals who look at neighborhoods like the Tenderloin with its poverty, the prostitution and other things, and they conclude that the cause of that is the race of the people who are there. And so out of that, the notion that the presence of Black people, no matter what their background is, will lower property values, it begins to get written into real estate practices. And so with Peyton, there's a way that that works to his favor with these two property owners that are having an argument. And one of them decides he's going to get back at his neighbor by renting his building to all black people, uh, because, of course, that will be a nuisance. And uh, he hires Peyton to rent up that building. And so and and it seems like to manage it as well. And so there there is a fee that Peyton gets for that. And it's a, it's a substantial one. And he then begins to market that practice with other owners, um, saying that he specializes in colored tenements. 
And the appeal for the owners is that the practice is that Black people are charged more in these segregated buildings than the predecessor white tenants because, you know, it's really the market that Black people had limited choices. They couldn't move everywhere and property owners knew that. And so they would, that was a practice. And so while there might be a negativity associated with Black presence from a revenue point of view, an owner who decides to do that is making a calculation that they're going to be able to get more money. And so that practice is what leads Peyton to very quickly experience success, open an office in Harlem in addition to the one downtown. And by 1903, he and his wife have bought a townhouse on West 131st Street between Lenox and Fifth Avenue. And they're the only Black people on that block at the time that they they moved there. And so there's a, you know, kind of... Uh, <laughs> a collapse in what would take decades usually for him is three years from porter to homeowner and business owner uh, as well. And a successful business at that. Right, right. There's a a change in the book um, that you allude to uh, from a sense that Philip Payton is engaging in almost real estate civil rights, uh, acting on behalf of his community to a point where he seems to be, uh, I don't know if you specifically use the word slumlord, but he, he seems to be more into it for his own profit at some point in his career. Is that an accurate uh, way to talk about that change? And, um, and it, it, just to, if you could expand on that a little. He is a, a fully human person, as I've tried to describe him. And the question I have, so by 1903, his success leads him to develop a, a partnership with about eight other Black entrepreneurs, investors. Most of them are a decade or two older than him. And he calls it the Afro-American Realty Company. And he continues his practice of renting up buildings. In 1904, uh, there's an incident that pushes him to a more public level. The area where he lived and where his office was in Harlem was part of a small enclave, a black enclave in Harlem. Uh, and for those who know New York City, uh, it's where Lenox Terrace is between Lenox and Fifth Avenue on 135th Street. There's an apartment complex called Lenox Terrace there now. Mm-hmm. But then 135th, 134th, 133rd Street between Lenox Avenue and Fifth Avenue, those were predominantly black blocks. And that's where Peyton was. 1904, the subway line, the, two and the three subway line was scheduled to open. And in the fall, and it was going to have a stop at 135th Street. And in earlier in that year, a company called Hudson Realty began buying property in the area, both occupied buildings, but there was also vacant land above 135th Street that they bought. And so it seems like they were assembling land. It was a larger firm. And uh, 
in the spring, they serve eviction notices on the people who live in the buildings that they own in the area. And many of them are black people. And rather than go quietly, uh, the people organize and some of their meetings are written about in the paper. And they, they say that the Hudson Realty is claiming that they're being evicted because they brought criminality to the area. Um, but their leader, uh, a Reverend Norman Epps, uh, says that Hudson Realty is evicting them because the properties have become more desirable because of the coming of the subway, which I think is 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 accurate. Peyton is and his Afro American Realty partners are part of a, a counter uh, a strategy, and it's kind of like a chess game. So Hudson Realty is trying to assemble this property. Peyton, J.C. Thomas, who was an undertaker and he was a partner in, in Peyton's business, a woman named Julia Ligon, who's not in the business, but she work, she's not in Peyton's business, but she seems to work with them occasionally. They buy property adjacent to the area that Hudson was um, had purchased. And it seems like they block Hudson's attempt to expand. And by the end of the year, Hudson has, has sold his property. And coming out of this in the summer of 1904, Peyton incorporates the Afro-American Realty Company. It had been a partnership when he formed it. By incorporating it, he's able to raise capital by selling $10 shares. And in the incorporation papers, he expands the purpose not only to rent and lease and manage, but to develop properties as well. And he announces the formation um, with a prospectus that's about... 12 pages long. It's a pamphlet-sized prospectus. It has a really ambitious goal. He says that the purpose of the company will be to eradicate, quote, Negro colonization in New York, and that he's going to make the color line costly for landlords. And when it becomes impracticable, it will go the way of all impracticable things, and housing discrimination will go away. And so that's the vision that he presents. But your question, and I'm, I know this is a kind of roundabout answer, um, is that he doesn't really do that. That what he does is continue his practice of getting control of buildings. If there are white people in them, he evicts them and puts in black people. And he also charges black people more. Um, the hesitancy I would have in calling him a slumlord is that Harlem is the best housing that black people ever had access to in New York mm-hmm. in 1904. That Harlem, most of those buildings, the brownstones in Harlem, even that exist today, most of those were built in the 1880s, 1890s. And similar with many of the apartment buildings, there are some that are earlier, but most were quite new in 1904. And so he is able to market what he's doing by saying that, that he's giving them value for their money. And that's not, it's not totally untrue, um, but what he's not doing, so he uh, gets control of a building on 150th Street in 1906. It's occupied, it's off of Broadway, so it's little bit outside of the area that that his main focus is, is fully occupied by white people. And he 
if he was following his vision, he would have waited till vacancies happened and then maybe put some black people and left the white people there. But instead, he evicts the white people. And that ends up, they go to the New York Times and it's written about. And I think it really kind of the the confrontation in that practice, I think it puts him in the crosshairs of a lot of people for the next really decade or so that there's a there is a backlash on several levels. Um, uh, in Harlem, property owners on some blocks, white property owners begin putting restrictive covenants in the deeds of their property that say that it can't be sold or occupied by black people. And those deeds run with the property, not with the owner. And so that's one attempt. And and then there's a fair amount of uh, negative publicity that, that comes out of his practices as well. So he can't be called a slumlord for one simple reason, and it's that it wasn't a slum. Correct. Um, how did he handle the the pressure of the negative press? He continues to see, he leans into the condition of the housing. Um, he, by this time, he is in Booker T. Washington's inner circle, and he's pretty much there from the beginning of his his real estate work. And I talk about in the book how I think he got there um, in that um, the, the founder of uh, Hampton Institute which Booker T. Washington attended was Charles Chap- Samuel Chapman Armstrong, a general, Civil War general. Armstrong's mother was from Westfield or outside of Westfield. And by the latter, by the time that Washington has formed Tuskegee Institute in Alabama, that institute is formed in the 1880s, what was then Westfield Normal School. Uh, which was a teacher's college, is the place that Washington is sending his best students after they graduate from Tuskegee, they go there. And one of the people who goes there is a man named Samuel Courtney. And uh, he's a fair-skinned Black man uh, who eventually goes to Harvard Medical School and becomes a physician. But Black students, when they were attending Westfield Normal at that time, there was no dorm space for them. So they stayed with families in the town. And I believe, I suspect that he may have stayed with the Peyton family. I can't prove that. But even if he didn't stay with them, I am almost certain he would have had dinner with them. He would have known them. And Courtney ends up being a close associate. He was an associate of Washington. They knew each other from childhood. So I I see that as the entry of of uh, Peyton into the Washington inner circle. And the reason that's important is because Washington has a philosophy of Black people focusing on economic development and ownership and not making such a priority out of uh, confrontation and particularly out of uh, civil rights. And so Peyton, in a way, so on one hand, he's doing what Washington wants, and Washington contra- congratulates him on his business successes. But his confrontational style is really not in the, that's not from the Washington playbook. But Washington continues to uh, be uh, treat him favorably. 
Emmett Scott, Washington's right-hand man, is an officer in Peyton's company. And I'm sure if Washington didn't want him to be there, he wouldn't have. And so there is a way that um, that Peyton navigates this. And for many Black people in Harlem, what he's doing is seen as positive. And there's a, that's the kind of dilemma um, in looking at his life. Um, you know, kind of if we jump forward, Peyton died in 1917, but he does play a pivotal role. And I say that, I don't say it in the book, but as I talk about it, I say he branded Harlem for Black people before they were there in large numbers. And so the negative part of that is he does kind of reinforce segregation practices as they are in their infancy. But on the other hand, that strong Black neighborhood and those social networks, those institutions that are growing in the teens, by the 20s, that becomes a foundation for the Harlem Renaissance. And I, I think that, you know, it's possible that Black people might have moved to Harlem anyway at some point, but I doubt that they would have moved there in such large numbers then. Um, you know, and there are other people, other real estate brokers who come in and really vie with Peyton and some overtake him even uh, while he's living. But he really did set the ball in motion. And and so this this kind of double-edged sword that I when I look at his life. Um, and and it, by the teens, there are some black people who are criticizing all of the black real estate investors um, and owners uh, for charging them more. And, you know, I think implicit in your question, was he a slumlord? It, there, it seems like some of them were because they're saying you're charging us more and giving us less. And um, and so I can't say exactly whether Peyton did that or not, um, but it's possible. But that's not how he saw what he was doing. Um, and he really focused on the quality of the housing. But there's definitely a, a level of self-interest in there that if if he had charged black people the same as white people, he would have made less money. And what I you know, touch on in the book is the challenges of black entrepreneurs then and to some extent now is that he doesn't have as much capital. Um, the real estate financing industry is pretty limited at that time. You really cannot go to banks and just get mortgages for the properties he's buying. And so I understand from my real estate finance background, the challenges he had in doing what he did. And that helped. I don't excuse what he did, but it helps me explain why he would feel the need to continue that practice, even when he had said he was going to eradicate uh, Negro colonization, which, you know, kind of in modern terms, that would mean housing discrimination. You know, I think you, you said an important thing earlier today where, where uh, you said he was fully human. And I think that's that's part of being a biographer. You you came you came to the subject with a certain sympathy for the individual that you were going to write about. Otherwise, you wouldn't have devoted so many years of your life to the project. But um, like every other human being, he's he's bound to disappoint you, uh, perhaps as much as he 
uh, makes you feel pride in him. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Now, you talked about how he brought so many African-Americans into Harlem, and in some sense, this set the stage for the Harlem Renaissance of the decade after his death. And the title of the book is Philip Payton, the Father of Black Harlem. Uh, I don't suppose he ever called himself that. I don't think so, but he... He died. It was his death was unexpected by people in Harlem. Mm -hmm. Although through my research, I think he was he died of liver cancer, and so I think he knew he was seriously ill. I don't know if he knew that his illness was terminal, because at that time, sometimes doctors didn't tell patients, even if the doctors knew. Mm -hmm. But even if he knew, knowing what I know about his personality. Um, he's shaping his, he's shaping his image, uh, through the end. And so he's not calling himself the, the father of, of, uh, Black Harlem, but the week before his death, there's a notice in the New York age, which is a paper that he had very close ties with. And it says Philip Payton is under nurse's care, but he'll be something like he'll be up and around soon. And then the next week, the paper is saying that he has died. And so it's a shock to people. And so the title comes from the eulogy um, and they called the, the pastor, uh, he belonged to St. Mark's church, which is now on Edgecombe Avenue and about 139th street in Harlem. Then it was on 52nd street. He calls him the father of colored Harlem and other people did too in the, in the headlines about his death, father of colored Harlem. And he mm -hmm. really is seen as the Dean by his death. Um, his business is diminished, but he has a major deal, the biggest deal of his life that is in progress at his death. And so in a way, it's almost like it gives him that <laughs> last image. Um, but even that, you know, father of colored Harlem or father of black Harlem, it, for me, I wanted to point that out that, um, there was a predominantly white Harlem that preceded it. And his vision, if he had carried it out, it would have been a multiracial Harlem. And I think because we know that didn't happen, I think we tend to think it wasn't possible. And, um, and I don't know about that because even as I looked at the census records in 1900, there are black and white people in Harlem living in the same building. Some are living in the same apartment. It's not a lot of them, but the practices that we think were foreordained, housing discrimination practices, um, they, they really were not. They, they happened because there were, they were written into institutions. And, um, and I'm also really hoping that this book can help us see that you know, kind of when I think about what, what are the lessons learned for today, that's one of the things I, I do talk about in that. Uh, there, housing discrimination in real estate in various levels is, is still endemic. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the reason why we haven't eradicated it is because we think that, well, that's just the way it is. But looking at how it developed, I think it helps us understand what we would need to do to dismantle it because it's not 
it wasn't organic. It really happened through practices and through policies. You know, at the end of the book, you do something interesting. You you do something that a lot of historians don't do, but you, I think, do it based on your expertise in the topic, and I think you do it well. Uh, and that is that you you pose some different possibilities for what might have happened differently and how. And I, I wonder if you could just explore that a little bit for our listeners. Sure. It really kind of touches on what I was just describing. I really want to readers to think about the fact that we know what Peyton did, but he did have choices. And if he had chosen, you know, what I said earlier, what if, so yes, he did get that deal that allowed him to put black people in the building and he got a substantial amount of money. But when he announced the Afro-American Realty Company, that was a, that had national recognition, at least in the black community. And if he had really followed through with that, as he gained control of buildings, he would have placed black people in them, but let the white people remain. And the reason that becomes important is because I think if he had done that, he might not have had the backlash that he had. So there's a link between the first restrictive covenant in Harlem that I've been able to find and his eviction of those tenants on 150th Street. That it's such a public event that I think at least white residents, probably some who were indifferent to organize, and it allows people who are hostile to black people to use that. And all white people were not hostile to black people. And so I think it's possible if he had followed that track, he might have been able to get those multiracial buildings. And his flair for publicity. I know he could have sold that. Um, I'm not saying everybody would have followed it, but he used the media very effectively to do what he did. And I think if he had done something else, he would have found another way to use the media effectively. And um, even the, the lawsuit that he gets from his, um, his shareholders, because they're disgruntled that he hasn't issued a a uh, dividend, it, it is so unusual. And there's still questions I have about it that I, one part of me suspects that it might've been an attempt to sabotage the company by people who were hostile to what he was doing. And, and that, that effort, actually, it would have, the non-confrontational practice would have been more in alignment with Booker T. Washington. A multiracial building would have challenged Washington, but it would have revealed how Washington lived his life. That Washington, you know, in that 1895 Atlanta Compromise speech, he says, on things purely social, we can be as separate as the fingers, but one as the hand on those things essential to mutual progress, mutual progress. And so that suggests segregation is okay. But when we look at how Washington lived his life, he had predominantly white board members. He has lunch with Teddy Roosevelt. Um, and in a way, Peyton's vision is more in alignment with that. And if he had multiracial buildings, I think he could have made that work. And I guess part of the reason I say that is from what I know about the diversity of white residents of Harlem. 
those racial restrictive covenants that they had did not work because they were not unified. They, they were new to the area. They were ethnically diverse, religiously diverse. And I suspect, and so if you look at those first properties that Peyton buys in 1904, if white people don't want to sell black people property, they don't have to. But these, it's a handful of German Americans, they did. Not only did they sell it, but they gave him a mortgage, took back a mortgage. And that's a level of cooperation. And so that's why in my first book, I talk about conflict and cooperation. And so I think he could have leaned more into the cooperative part of White Harlem. And what he ended up doing is his actions, it kind of... uh, unleash the hornet's nest of the white people in Harlem who are hostile. And he gave them a rallying point. And so he's maneuvering around them for the rest of his life. Well, Kevin, we've taken up a lot of your time. Uh, I just have one more question for you. And that is, you know, what's, what's next for Kevin Magruder? What's on your, what are you working on right now? Another biography with the Harlem base of Harlem Renaissance writer Rudolf Fischer, um, who, uh, born in 1897, died in 1934, wrote two novels, uh, several short stories, essays, was a graduate of Howard University, a physician. Um, There's collections of his work that have been done, but no biography. I believe for somewhat similar reasons as with Peyton, that uh, there are papers, personal papers, but Mm -hmm. uh, not a lot. And um, I, he's one of the Harlem Renaissance writers that I admire a lot. And I had an opportunity through um, my work uh, to meet somebody who knew his granddaughter is in the 1990s. And through that, I was able to interview uh, Fisher's widow. Jane Ryder Fisher um, in about 1992. And so I sat with her. She was uh, about 99 years old at the time in a nursing home in uh, Virginia and uh, had a two, three hour sessions. And, um, and so I learned a lot there. And so that's what I'm, I'm beginning to work on now. I've reconnected with uh, uh, their granddaughter and uh, Already, she's given me some photographs that I've never seen before. So, so I'm really excited about moving forward with that. That sounds like a great project, and it, mm-hmm. it's it seems like there'll be a lot more sources from which you can draw. Yeah, definitely. Uh, well, uh, Kevin Magruder, associate professor at Antioch College in Yellow Springs, Ohio. I want to just take this opportunity to thank you once more for sitting with uh, with me, uh, David Hamilton Golland, uh, for new books in history. Thank you so much. Oh, I appreciate the invitation. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye now.